morning. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to uh, make your way to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which is found on page 966 in the Pew Bibles. And so if you don't have a Bible, you can uh, grab one from the Pew Rack and make your way there. I was thinking this past week about how um, you hear this thing as, as a child from your parents, but you never believe it's true until you're actually a parent and you have children. Um, but, you know, your parents say that when you get older, time flies. It just flies by. You know, when you're 15 years old waiting to be 16, it seems like it drags on. Or when you're, uh, when you're 17 waiting to be 18 and to graduate high school, it seems like time just stands still. But as you get to your mid-40s, it really does fly. And uh, I was thinking about that this week because we're only a couple of weeks removed from New Year's and it already seems like a lifetime ago. We were, uh, we were in Alabama between Christmas and New Year's visiting uh, Kimbo's family. That's my wife. We were visiting her family. And, uh, and it was a fun time. It, it wasn't my most memorable New Year's Eve. Uh, we were with family and so we... We shot off fireworks, we uh, watched Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve, um, and then we, uh, we drank sparkling grape juice with the kids and went to bed around 12.15. So it was, a, it was a fun time, but it wasn't my most memorable New Year's Eve. I was thinking about my most memorable, and I'm not sure if it was, but it's up there, uh, December 31st, 2009. We were living uh, outside of Dallas, and so we went with our good friends, the Dawkins, to, uh, to Gillies. Now, Gillies is the honky-tonk that was made famous in the movie Urban Cowboy with uh, John Travolta and Deborah Winger. And so we went there that night, and we rode the mechanical bull, and we, uh, we listened to some great country music, and we danced the night away. And that really was one of my most memorable New Year's Eves. I told you last week that um, I enjoy dancing. Problem is, my wife doesn't. Uh, nor does she enjoy country music, so I was 0 for 2 on that New Year's Eve. But I made an effort, right? That, that year was more memorable for me than it was for her. Uh, I told you that I enjoy dancing, particularly I, I enjoy two-stepping, because even a guy like me with two left feet can two-step. You know, two-stepping's pretty simple. Two steps in one direction, and then one small slide in the other direction. For these first two weeks of 2019, last week and this week, uh, we're considering what I've called the gospel dance. And it's a lot like the two-step. We, we move into God in faith and repentance. And then we step out into mission. And then we just keep following that pattern over and over and over again. We move into God in faith and repentance, and then he spins us out into mission. When you're dancing and you start off on the right foot or the correct foot, it can be fun, it can be beautiful, and the gospel dance is meant to be that. It's meant to be beautiful and fun, but when we start off on the wrong foot, things can easily go sideways. We lose our timing, we step on each other's feet, we end up getting frustrated, but when we get the dance right, and it's very simple, almost everything else falls into place. And what I want you to understand as we, as we launch into this new year is that, is that God has called us to do this dance, and it's really simple. And let's just start off on the right foot, moving into him constantly in faith and repentance. 
and then following his lead as he spins us out into mission and doing it over and over and over again. I want you to take just a moment and remember something that you probably tried to forget. It's, I'm going I'm to warn you in advance, it's very cringy. Do you remember middle school dances? I know, I'm sorry for doing that to you. Can you think back to your middle school dances? Can you at least picture one? In middle school, it's so painful, it's so awkward. Uh, during a slow dance, the guys are standing on one side of the gymnasium, the girls on the other. You muster up what, it's so awkward to even think about it, because I can remember the exact girl, Amy Williams, this little redhead. She was in seventh, I was in eighth, and I just wanted to slow dance to her to some Brian Adams song, probably. <laughs> you think about that painfully awkward slow dance, um, middle schoolers, they're not quite sure what to do with their hands. They stand about as far from their dance partner as possible. They just sort of shuffle their feet from side to side, doing this number. It's, uh, it's awkward and it's ugly, in a sweet sort of way, right? In a, sweet, in a sweet sort of way. And I was thinking about that this week, and I think that sometimes we as Presbyterians do the gospel dance like we're back in middle school. We're not quite sure what to do with our hands, Right? Can we, can we admit to that? As Presbyterians, we have no idea what to do with these things. We keep a cerebral grasp of God. So, so we keep a cerebral grasp of him, but not an intimate embrace. And most of the time, we just shuffle our feet back and forth, but we do not, we never go anywhere. It isn't beautiful, it doesn't flourish whenever we move around the dance floor of life, moving into faith and repentance and then watching as he spins us out into mission. And friends, that's what we're going to consider this morning. If the gospel dance doesn't spin us out into mission, we're just like a middle schooler who's shuffling our feet, never going anywhere. And so last week, we, we looked at the first part of this gospel dance. We draw close to God in faith and repentance. And we never stop. Because of God's great, unconditional, never-ending love for us. Those are the foundational gospel steps, uh, steps to this dance. We never stop moving into God in faith and repentance. But there's another step to this dance that we dare not miss. In, in one effortless motion, God spins us out into mission. And that's the pattern that he has designed us for. Moving to God in faith and repentance, and then following his lead as he spins us out into mission. And so the passage, again, is 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to read verses 11 through 21. Let me pray for us that God would do a work within us this morning, then we'll read God's word together. Heavenly Father, uh, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word remains forever, and your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And Lord, I pray that your word would work this morning, that your spirit would go before both the reading and preaching of the word and that you would unstop our ears and open our eyes and give us receptive hearts so that as we read your word this morning, your spirit would work. That your spirit would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves um, to change us, to convict us, to enlighten us, and to compel us and move us into mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin in verse 11. This is God's holy word. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. 
But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. May God write his word upon our hearts. There's a lot going on in this passage, but it can really be summed up in a single sentence. This passage and what we're going to consider this morning can be summed up in one single sentence. In Christ, we are new creations controlled by love, to be winsome ambassadors for Jesus. That's what this passage is all about. It's what we're going to consider this morning, that in Christ we are new creations controlled by love to be winsome ambassadors for Jesus. And so what I want us to do this morning is take a few moments to unpack that sentence into three parts. First, in Christ we are new creations. In Christ we're new creations. Did you know that the Apostle Paul never once used the name Christian uh, to describe a follower of Christ uh, as the name for a follower of Jesus. There's nothing wrong with, with the name Christian, nothing wrong with us being called Christians. In fact, um, followers of Jesus have been called Christians since the middle of the first century. It's a, it's a very common name, but it wasn't a name that Paul used. Paul used as his most common description for, for those who are followers of Jesus, he used the phrase, in Christ. That's how he described folks like us who are, who are believers, who are followers of Jesus. He said we are in Christ. And to be in Christ means that we are unified with him in every respect. It means that Christ is our very identity. When we are united to Christ, it means that his life is ours. It means that his death is ours, his resurrection is ours, and his righteousness is ours. If you're a Christian, this is who you are, this is what you are. You are one who is in Christ. You're a new creation. And so, uh, to, to maybe make sense of this, consider, consider two super, superheroes that are very different, Batman and Superman. Or, I'm sorry, Spider-Man, Batman and Spider-Man. Now, Batman and Spider-Man, they began as normal human beings, right? Bruce Wayne and Peter Parker. 
But that's where their similarities end. When Bruce Wayne becomes Batman, let's just be honest. He's just a really rich guy with a bunch of cool toys and a nice lair. He really doesn't have any superpowers. And I've gotten into this argument with my son and with others. He really doesn't have any superpowers. He shouldn't be called a superhero. He's got a really cool belt with some really cool gadgets, some neat automobiles, and a really cool lair. And he works out a lot. He's strong. He's strong, but he has no superpowers. Spider-Man's different. You see, Spider-Man, Peter Parker was bitten by a radioactive spider, and as a result, he is fundamentally changed. He has a power accessible to him because it is within him. When we're united to Christ, our fundamental nature is changed. It's more like Spider-Man than Batman. We, just, we don't have add-ons to us. We become new creations, entirely new that means that everything about us is changed. In Christ, friend, everything about us is changed. The way we see the world is changed. The way we see ourselves is changed. The way that we see others is changed. And all of this change brings a missional change within us. Having, having a missional mindset is not an add-on to the Christian life. It is part and parcel of the Christian life. To, to, to think in terms, here's what I'm saying, to think in terms of mission, to have a heart for mission, to have a mindset of mission, to see others differently, is not something that we add on to our belt. It is part of who we are. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. If we don't understand or believe that what it means to be in Christ, that his life is ours, his identity is ours, his priorities are ours, that we are new creations, then the movement of our gospel dance will never flourish and it will never take the shape of mission. So in Christ, we are new creations. Now the second part of that sentence, in Christ, we are new creations controlled by love. Did you notice as we were reading this passage that really it tells the entire gospel story? We were once people of the flesh. That's who we once were, people of the flesh. We were sinful and unrighteous. But Christ died for us. In this, in this divine transaction, this imputation, Christ took our sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we who were unrighteous might become the righteousness of God. We're now new creations with a new identity. And as righteous people with a new identity, God has given us a new mission. Right in the middle of this gospel story, Paul tells us there's a new power at work within us. There's a new power controlling us. And it's the love of Christ. So verse 14 begins, For the love of Christ controls us. Elsewhere, that word, syneche, is, is uh, translated compels. And it's, it's a fine word for it, but really it loses some of its meaning. I like how the ESV renders it, controls us. For the love of Christ controls us. Again, the word that Paul uses there is syneche. It's where we get, it's where in English where we get the word seize. 
to, to seize something. Christ's love seizes us. And so here, here's the word picture. I want you to imagine the uh, I want you to imagine the captain of a ship or the pilot of a plane. And in both cases, if you're at the helm of a ship or you're in the cockpit of a plane, you have controls at your fingertips. And, and when a pilot or a captain takes hold of those controls, the plane or the ship is at their command. They have seized it. It is at, it's at their direction. It goes where they direct what Paul is saying here is that we've been taken hold of. If you're in Christ, you've been taken hold of by the love of Christ. It has seized you, and the love of Christ now controls us. So sort of mixed images. Think about having a dance partner. In this gospel dance with God, he takes hold of us, not in a harsh way, but in a commanding way. That, that he's in the lead. There's no mistaking who's leading this dance. He takes hold of us and he directs our movements. He directs us because of love. He directs us in the way of love. He, he seizes us, takes hold of us, moves us in the way of love because of his love. To make this point, to press this point, Paul reminds us in verses 14 and 15, that it was love that compelled Christ to die for us. That it was, it was love that compelled Christ to die for us. It was love that, that motivated Christ to, to move beyond himself towards mission, to a salvation mission. And it's that very love that is now ours that controls us. If you've been around the church for any time at all, if you've, if you've been around um, Christians for any time at all, you've, you've surely heard um, a message or a lesson on the Great Commission or the call to Christian mission. We all know, we all know that, that the movement towards mission is part of this gospel dance. We know this. You, you can't be around the church or Christians for any, any real time at all without... Um, being introduced to the idea of mission. That we do not exist for ourselves in our own glory. We exist for the glory of God and the benefit of others. The Christian church is the only organization or organism, really, that doesn't exist for itself. We exist for others. We exist for mission. But what does it actually take to move us into mission? It's one thing to know that we exist for mission. But what does it take to actually move us to mission? I don't think that guilt will work. I think, I think maybe guilt works for a short time. But then it, 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 it sort of vanishes. It evaporates. The guilt uh, no longer works. I don't think that guilt is a good motivation for Christian mission. I, I, don't, I don't think that simply knowing the need will work. I believe the only thing that will move us into mission is when Jesus takes command of our lives, takes command of the rudder, and his love controls us, when we're controlled by the love of Christ, when we're so overwhelmed and awestruck and humbled by his love for us, then we're compelled and controlled in a love for others. 
So in Christ, we are new creations, controlled by love, to be winsome ambassadors. So listen again to verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is one of those verses that always astounds me, always amazes me. God uses me to be an authorized and empowered representative of him. He, he makes his appeal through me. But it's not just me. It's not just me and Jason as pastors. It's not me and Jason and guys like Robert who prayed earlier and others because we're elders. Friends, God uses you as an empowered representative of him. If you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, he uses you. He makes his appeal through you. You are a missional ambassador for Christ with a message of reconciliation. You have been deputized, empowered, indwelt, motivated, and sent. God makes his appeal to the world through us. I wouldn't have done it that way, but he didn't ask me. Think about the word winsome for just a moment. In Christ, united to him, in Christ, we are new creations controlled by love to be winsome ambassadors. Some synonyms for winsome are pleasant, engaging, appealing, winning. That's the kind of ambassadors that we're called to be. You know, I, I've said it before, but you don't have to be abrasive or confrontational or offensive to be a gospel ambassador. The gospel is offensive on its own. It doesn't need our help. The gospel is an offense. It's an offense to those who have not yet believed. God doesn't need our help in the offending category. The gospel confronts people by its very nature. You don't have to do its heavy lifting. So I have a buddy from seminary. We don't talk as much as we used to, but we still talk occasionally. And, and uh, he's, he's come around, but he says that, that many Calvinists take the approach, this is the approach many Calvinists take, if you can catch more flies with honey than vinegar, imagine the flies you can catch with dung and decay. <laughs> now think about it. He says, Jeremy, if you can catch flies, more flies with honey than vinegar, imagine what you could really catch them with. Imagine what flies are really attracted to. And here's his point. Many Reformed Christians seem to believe the best way to go about Christian mission is to present the foulest, smelliest, most difficult parts of the Christian faith, and if people are truly elect, they'll respond. Let, let's, let's give them the worst. Now, I'm not saying, I'm certainly not saying that we should sugarcoat the gospel or try to make it more palatable. What I'm saying is what Jesus says. He offered this call, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest the gospel itself is offensive but it's also compelling and our call is to be winsome 
to be winsome ambassadors. When Kimbo and I took a dance class several years ago, the, uh, the dance instructor, it was this older gentleman, he'd been dancing competitively for several decades. Um, and he would, he would say, okay, take your partner, and then he would just tell us, he would, he would say, now I want you to do this. That didn't help me, right? That didn't help me. There was, there was something didn't compute between my ears and my feet. I didn't need someone to just tell me what to do. I needed someone to actually take hold of me and show me how to do it. So in this final point, I want to share a couple thoughts on how. Right? How to do this dance. How to be a winsome ambassador. See, you can believe that, that you are now a new creation in Christ. You can believe that the love of Christ controls you. You can believe that God calls you to be a winsome ambassador. How? First, just a couple things, a couple things to think about. I think they're, they're not as practical, maybe, as, as, um, as we could get to, but they're, they're at least something to hang your hat on. First, one of the ways to be a, dis- uh, a winsome ambassador is, is to begin by living distinct lives of love. Living distinct lives of love. So Paul tells us at the beginning of the verses we read that, that he wasn't commending himself, that he wasn't boasting about himself, that he wasn't trying to give the Corinthians a reason to, to look at him and, and say how great he was. He was commending Christ. And how did he do it? Through a life of love. Not, not through all these external things that are seen, but in the heart, by the heart. He wanted people to look at his life and see how great Christ was. How great Christ is. And friends, what I want you to understand is this missional message that we've been entrusted with is seen long before it's heard. What did we sing a moment ago, and what did Jesus tell his disciples just before the crucifixion? All men will know that you're my disciples when you preach excellent sermons. When you have this or that. All men will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. And we sang it as our second hymn this morning. They'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know. Our missional message that we've been entrusted with is seen long before it's heard. And so being a winsome ambassador for Jesus begins with simply living out the virtues of faith, hope, and love. Do your family members, maybe that you spent time with over Christmas, or your neighbors, or the colleagues, the folks you work with, do they witness a life of love? Not, not in what you say, but in, in actually how you engage with them. Would they, would they know that you love them? Do they, act, do they see that you love them? Do, do they see that you're hopeful? You know, it's a, bit, it's a bit cliche, but it's true nonetheless, even though it is cliche. People do not care what you know or really how much you know unless they know how much you care. So you think back to last week's sermon, if you were here, 
We talked about the first two steps of this gospel dance, moving to God in faith and repentance. And the passage that we uh, considered is Luke 15, the parable of the two sons, the parable of a prodigal son. So you think about that, that uh, passage, think about that sermon. The younger son uh, it comes to a partial repentance early on. He says, I will arise, I will go to my father, I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. What he's saying is, I'll work my way back into your love, into your favor, into your good graces. I will do what my older brother has always done. I will serve you. And then maybe I'll, I'll have your love. But before, before the words are out of his mouth, I didn't really draw this point out last week, but the son comes, hat in hand, speech rehearsed, and he, his father sees him, runs and embraces him, and the son begins his speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father stops him. He interrupts, he interjects, doesn't let him finish his speech. Tells his servants, go kill the fattened calf. Get him a robe, get him a ring. The parable doesn't tell us if the father said this. Son, hush, just stop. I don't need to hear it. I, I love you. I've always loved you. He may have said that. But what he did displayed it. What I want you to understand is that the father's love for his son was seen even before it was heard in this running embrace. And as the son prepares this speech, the father, at least it's not recorded in the parable, doesn't say, you got to stop, I love you anyway. He just demonstrates love. Kill the fattened calf. Here's a robe. Here's a ring. Even without words, the father lived love. And that should be true of us as winsome ambassadors. Before anyone hears what we have to say, and I, they do have to hear it, they should see a life of love. So how, how, how do you live or serve as a winsome ambassador? Well, first, you just live a distinct life of love. Second, one of the ways that we serve as a winsome ambassador is, is to actively as we go about life, regard others as just like us. The way we treat others. In, in, um, I've already, we've already had the confession of sin time, so um, I, I confess this during that moment of silence. But I'll, I'll confess to you. James 6 tells us to do, right? Confess your sins one to another. Uh, I was in Walmart a few days ago. And, oh, my attitude towards the Walmart employees was not good, not good. If you've been to the one there at Lewis and 81st, uh, there's only about four lines now that they actually have someone working. They've converted them all to self-checkouts on both ends of the store. And so um, I was going through the self-checkout, and as always happens, the self-checkout didn't work. You know, it said, you know, we need, you need assistance. So a little red light comes on, and I wait, and I wait, and I wait. No one's coming to help me. And I'm mumbling on my breath. These incompetent Walmart workers can't see a blinking red light. I didn't say blink. It was blinking. I probably didn't say blinking in my head. But they can't see this red light. Uh, look, all you got to do is punch in your employee code and get me on my way. So finally I gave up and I was, I'm done with this self-checkout stuff. And I walk over to a line that was manned, you know, to someone that had a, someone working there. And, uh, and I had another negative experience. 
and I'm sitting there just berating, not any particular individual, just Walmart employees in general. And if you work for Walmart, I apologize for this. This was my sinful heart in this moment, right? You can substitute research, every, you know, anything. I, I, this is more about me than it is about their ability. Just, I cannot believe the level of incompetence of these people. They would take an extra four minutes of my day. And then I came back to the office the next day, work on my sermon, and I thought, oh no. <laughs> I've already written the part down where I said that we, we need to actively live and love and regard others as just like us. I wonder who would say that about me, that I'm incompetent. Can't believe they'd hire a Yahoo like him. Did Jesus count your trespasses against you? This passage says that he didn't. He counted your trespasses against himself. Did Jesus die for you because you were deser deserving and righteous? No. The very end of the verses we read said that he died to make you righteous, but not because you were righteous. Apart from Jesus, you and I are not fundamentally any different from those who are still apart from Jesus. We're not different. We're not better. Even now, as God is transforming us, it's His gracious work. And so one of the ways that we, we live as a winsome ambassador is to actively regard others as just like us. Because a Christian, I ain't got it figured out. I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where they can go buy bread. When I remember that I am a sinner saved by grace, then I will more readily regard others as sinners who simply need God's grace. And so what the gospel does is it breaks down the us-them categories. That we're the good folks, and they're the pagans. That we've got it figured out, and they're the ones who, who haven't figured it out. The gospel reminds me that I am not better and that I'm not more deserving. And that actively works its way out in the way that I engage with others. So that when I see someone at Walmart, or when I see, you know, uh, just, just encounter people daily, that on this spiritual plane, I don't regard myself as better than them, but as one just like them. That we are alike in our need, and as the gospel does its work, it puts me actively at work in the lives of others. Friends, if, if we're not regularly being spun out into mission, we're not doing the gospel dance we were created to do. We're just like a middle schooler shuffling our feet. If we're not actively and regularly being spun out into mission, we're not dancing the way God has designed that we move to God constantly in faith and repentance and then he as he controls us as he is in the lead he spins us out into mission to be a winsome ambassador to represent him that he makes his appeal through guys like me and through gals like you let's pray that he would do that and that we would be responsive father thank you that you did not regard um 
us as unworthy or you didn't regard us as imbeciles and incompetent. You just, you simply saw us as, as children uh, that you had created in, your, in, in the image of Christ. And you saw our need and you sent your son who became like us that we might become like him who lived a life that we couldn't live and died a death that we deserved to die and rose victoriously from the grave and is now seated next to you, Father. And all that's true of us, that we are seated with you in the heavenlies because of Christ, but only because of Christ, not because we're better, not because we figured it all out, but simply because you've been good and gracious to us. And now, God, I pray that we would respond moment by moment, day by day, to your goodness and grace for us in being winsome ambassadors for you, to be on mission. It's who we are. And so when we, when we lose our identity, when we begin to mistake our identity and, and don't live on mission because we forget who we are, would you convict us and call us back? Mm. Do that even in this meal, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, <clears throat> we went down to... Uh,